from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, what do people need at this time in their lives? Never knowing is kind of an interesting place to start. It resonated with me. It's similar to my own background. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Adam Driver is kind of a Marlon Brando for millennials. Very masculine and outlawish, but angsty and vulnerable. And he's been fairly ubiquitous and riveting since his breakout role in the TV series Girls started five years ago. Do you want to watch Bagger Vance? I can't. Okay, I'm working the door. Would you, do you want to watch Bagger Vance extras? No, like Elijah's being a fascist dictator. I really got to go. I'll see you later. Would well, you want to make balloon faces? I spoke with Adam Driver in 2013 when he appeared in the Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis. He was just four years out of Juilliard and had already worked with Steven Spielberg and Clint Eastwood and Tony Kushner. So I asked if having success come so quickly was astounding. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to process it or, or, or have had time to think about a good way to articulate it to myself of what is the things I've got to do. Does it feel all good or does it like worry you or discombobulate you? I mean, like working with Tony Kushner and uh, Steven Spielberg and <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say so. It's not bad. It's not bad, but I, um, it's definitely spoiled me for um, things moving forward. It's just the people that I got to work with. I'm like, oh, well, um, well, this is the way that uh, this is the way that it should be. You know, like I'll just work with these really good directors from now on. But uh, I don't know how realistic that, that yeah. is. You you play the main male character on Girls who is also named Adam. I want to play a clip from early on in the show, which I understand you may not have ever heard since you don't watch the show. Yeah, I don't. Um, uh, in which you're being accused of giving Hannah, played by Lena Dunham, uh, an STD. I'm pretty sure you gave it to me. You're the only person I've been having sex with. It is not prevented by condoms. Hold your roll. I didn't give it to you. Well, how do you know? Because I got tested and I don't have that. You got tested? When did you get tested? Last week. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. So now you owe me an apology. Okay, I'm sorry. Are you angry with me now? Just annoyed. Yeah. Will you still have sex with me? When it's appropriate. Sure. You have this extremely physical presence on the show. um, And often you are only partially dressed as well. Um, (laughs) What was the shirtlessness your idea or Lena's? No, Lena's. Really? Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) It was mine. Yeah, I think you should be shirtless all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and do you really not watch the show? I don't, no. And why is that? Um, well, I mean, lots of reasons. I, um, I just forgot what I looked like to, and was reminded, and my God, that's uh, <laughs> no one should have to go through that. Uh, but but most, mostly because I feel like um, uh, if it was going to continue, if it was going to kind of go on, that, uh, you know, I came from a theater background where you don't get to – 
look at the end result or what what is actually being across. Right. So you just have to do your homework and then uh, as much as you can and then show up on the day and be open to something being different or not knowing the answer. And I think that in things that I've watched in the past, like uh, one, I would just obsess about them for months and drive myself crazy. After and, you saw your work. Yeah, of things that I wanted to fix and change or or do over again. And I, I you know, obviously you can't. And, and same thing with the people around me. I just drive them nuts with like asking questions. So it, so it would, and that's just, that's annoying. Yeah, but couldn't it, wouldn't it be allow you to like, oh, next time I won't do that. Or, oh, totally. Or that, yeah, to yeah, get yeah. better the next time. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. It just kind of seems <laughs> yeah. to uh, be what, I think, I think I have a natural tendency to try to make things perfect or better looking or uh, uh, change it for the sake of changing it, arbitrary uh, changing or making, right. it, making it look better. And, I, and the things that I'm interested in and watching in film and theater and television are always the imperfect or the ugly part of it. And I, I just know it myself, especially while we're shooting it. Like I have no interest to see like what is coming across. Is it true that when that role was brought to you, you said, nah, it's TV, uh, TV's evil, I won't do it? Yeah, yeah. Actually, my agent's over there in the booth, and she was the one that was like, uh, you should actually... And did she fire you? Did she threaten to fire you for <laughs> turning down a role? <laughs> no, no, no. She's just, uh, she just doesn't like me in general, I think. <laughs> and, uh, but le- meeting Lena inside, like that was kind of the thing that sealed the deal for me. Um, I on this show I ask guests a lot about their their kind of aha moments as young people the thing they saw or experienced or read or whatever that made them pursue whatever creative field they're in. I read that the moment you realized you wanted to be an actor wasn't in a theater or watching TV but during basic training in the Marines. No, it wasn't basic training. We were it was in the fleet. Uh, artillery was firing white phosphorus over us. I was a, a mortarman. As a training exercise. Yeah, it was a training. Yeah, and um, got the coordinates wrong, and they they fired on us as opposed to the target. So uh, it was really windy, and and coupled with the fact that all of us were running away from it, uh, away from it, because if it touched you, it would burn you. And yeah, um, and that was kind of my first experience with uh, oh, like um, even though I'm young, I could uh, die and. The two things that I wanted to do is I wanted to smoke and uh, be an actor that n- didn't have any relation to each other. I just yeah. like, I never really smoke cigarettes. I want to see what. <laughs> really? Yeah. I That's funny. See, I want to see what that uh, is like. Yeah, and, I almost got killed. Let me kill myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then you got injured, right? And and, uh-huh. and didn't stay in the Marines? No, yeah, I broke my sternum. And, and had that not happened and had the Marines worked out, uh, would you have ended up where you are now, do you think? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. The, I mean, I didn't want to go. Like being a civilian again and all kind of getting my civilian privileges was like a hard thing to swallow, especially when they were kind of overseas doing their job and I wasn't. Like I was here in New York in acting school. Like that was kind of a, a really difficult uh, transition. And I would say I still regret not being able to, to – Go go through the full enlistment? Yeah, yeah. W- with my – with that specific group of people. I mean like there's no there's – Which no, is what it's all about at that yeah, yeah, point, all, right? Yeah. There's no like uh, – you kind of w- join for whatever reasons and you know we all kind of had reasons. But as soon as you kind of get in with that group of guys, you kind of forget about the outside. Where I remember very specific moments of being in a chow hall and watching uh, – um, President Bush at then being like, oh, our military is in a high uh, state of alarm. And I'm like, really? I'm, we're on red alert? You know, I'm, I'm here eating eggs right now uh, uh, and thinking about getting a second helping of potatoes. Like where the, the outside world seems something completely disconnected and, and we wanted to go and, and do our jobs with this, you know, group of guys. And the idea of not being with them through that is like there's, not, there's no way to describe it. And that. where did they deploy to? 
uh, they went uh, over. They did a Westpac in, of Iraq and Afghanistan. And now that you're an actor and and you're on in casts and. Does it is it hard for you not to feel as cast get together and feel oh we're part of this group and like you don't know what you're talking about I was in the Marines with this unit that I felt th- that was feeling close to people <laughs> I think I when I first got out I had a really strong sense of entitlement about being in the military and like and not and adjusting to civilian life and getting really aggressive with civilians about like what are you like complaining about getting in line for a latte like you know they're uh, but as since. Um, I, I don't really think that's – I've been fortunate enough to find acting to be able to find the language to express that. So I, I feel like I haven't gotten – like I started to calm down a little bit. And no to, longer to judging extent. civilians? Well, there's also – right. Well, there's also a strong connection between the military I think in theater or acting and uh, just that – you know, In that band of brothers kind of way? Yeah, but uh, – yeah, that there's uh, – you know, you're trying to accomplish a mission that's greater than yourself. It's it, it's not really about you. You have to know your role within a, a team. Uh, you know, you have to be intimate with people in a short amount of time and they're, the, the stakes are really high. The pressure is really high. Obviously, life or death circumstances don't really compare to, you know, uh, bad crafty. But uh, um, uh, the, still, the, the sentiment of trying to accomplish something that's, that is not about one specific person and, and putting your trust within other people and the discipline and the self-maintenance, it all applies. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, Adam Driver, it has been a pleasure watching you the last couple of years and a pleasure meeting you. Thanks. Oh, likewise. Thanks for having me. You can see Adam Driver in the new movie Patterson, directed by Jim Jarmusch, and starting next week in Martin Scorsese's Silence. And come spring in the final season of Girls. Next up, back in 1969, a somewhat crazed and difficult moment in America, an album that was a hopeful beacon. Sly and the Family Stones stand. That's ahead in Studio 360. From PRI and WNYC. There's a cross for you to bear. Things to go through if you are going anywhere. Studio 360. There are lots of players in the Middle East you can fear and loathe, but one that I've particularly respected and admired are the Kurds. They don't have their own country, but they live at the intersection of Turkey and Iran and Syria and Iraq. Their soldiers, the Peshmerga, have been important in the fight against ISIS. For the Kurds, that is a familiar role. They've been battling oppressors for centuries. But Kurdish history is little known and underdocumented outside their region. As war rages, a museum in the making is trying to change that. Mira Sharma has the story. Almost three decades ago, the architect Daniel Liebskind had a novel idea, a museum in Berlin that would convey the story of the Jewish people there in its very structure. Its twisting lines would reflect the Jews' tumultuous history in the city. Its empty spaces would symbolize what was lost in the Holocaust. For Liebskind, this was personal. You know, my parents were Holocaust survivors, and I was born in Poland after the Holocaust. I had no uncles, aunts, grandparents. They were all murdered. That year, he was giving a talk in Paris about his design for the Jewish Museum. Afterward, a bunch of students approached him. A group of young people came over to me, 
and said, this is our museum. I said, who are you guys? We have a group of 25 students in Paris. They were Kurds. They were Kurds. I don't know from where, but they were Kurds. They told him that while he was describing his memorial to a genocide long past, the Kurds were, at that moment, facing their own. The bodies which litter this town were those of people who ran out of their houses to try to escape the gas and then were killed out in the open, either by more gas or by high explosives. Those young Kurds told Liebskind that Saddam Hussein's regime was bombing and gassing Kurdish villages in northern Iraq. Thousands of Kurds were shipped to concentration camps. 180,000 were killed in what's called the Anfal Genocide. The Kurds had faced persecution and violence in their pursuit of a homeland for centuries. But in this period in the late 80s, it had become more brutal than ever. They said, this is like us, this labyrinth of history, this vista we want to be able to look to the future. Kurds would eventually re-enter his life. But first, he had other museums to build. That Jewish museum in Berlin, eventually completed in 2001. Cut into the facade are gashes, scars. It looks like a huge, twisted star of David. The master plan for the World Trade Center after 9-11 in New York. The architectural void at the World Trade Center site began to take shape with the last week's announcement of Studio Daniel Liebeskind's winning design. The Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco in 2008. The forms are pieces of Hebrew letters, and they cut through the building and spell or to life. These buildings that help people come to terms with their painful history, they've made him a star architect. Where the blueprints of that building say something about the subject of the museum itself. Peggy Levitt wrote the book Artifacts and Allegiances, How Museums Put the Nation and the World on Display. Liebeskind, I think, was one of the first to kind of actually embed the story of the group in the actual architecture. It's easy to forget that a generation ago, museums were exclusively places you'd go to see art and artifacts, or to learn about natural history or science. But in the last few decades, we've come to think about museums totally differently, and Liebeskind is a big reason for that. Today, they aren't just repositories for art— Instead, they're often immersive experiences about memory and identity. Levitt says this evolution of museums started in the 60s with the civil rights movement. You start seeing groups wanting their own experience showcased, and so you see museums like the Met doing things like Harlem on My Mind was a famous exhibit in the 1960s, or there was a famous exhibit at the Pompidou Center in Paris about art from the former colonies. This all coincides with the post-colonial moment, independence movements. So today, the idea of any kind of identity museum seems completely normal, even essential, like the National Museum of African American History and Culture that opened in Washington recently. President Obama called for the story of all of us. A new museum honors the African American experience and the struggle for freedom. We'll bring you both of those. Here's someone at the opening. Just being able to look at all the African American history in one set location, looking at um, Prince's jacket, um, Chuck Berry's Cadillac. I'm just excited about the whole thing. Levitt says not only are identity museums meaningful for the groups they represent, they also help keep museums relevant. Museums are being dragged or gracefully embracing their role as tools to either heal difficult memories or help to create successful, diverse 
societies. In 2009, two decades after Daniel Liebskin met those Kurdish students in Paris, a group of Kurds approached him once again. And they had a request that seemed like fate. This time, it was bureaucrats from the regional government of Kurdistan, an area of northern Iraq where the Kurds have some amount of self-rule. The prime minister, Nechirvan Barzani, wanted to build a museum, a museum that would tell the world the story of the Kurds, a story of hundreds of years of oppression and statelessness, and a story of resilience and hope. And of course, the first thing I did, I flew to Erbil. I met with the president. I met with many people. I met with the victims of downfall. Liebskin traveled the region to talk to survivors of the Anfal genocide, and they told him about lost relatives and shattered families. It resonated with me. It's similar to my own background. You know, I didn't have to research the Kurds too much. It was in my heart. There was a moment on his first visit to Orbeel when Liebskin was standing in the center of the city, atop an ancient mound called the Citadel. And he was thinking about how fragmented the Kurds are, spread across Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. So he pulled out his notebook and made a quick sketch of a museum. He drew four sections to represent each of those countries. And then he drew a courtyard with a flame, which he imagined could symbolize the spirit and resilience of the Kurdish people. In the spring of 2014, the design process was nearly complete and construction was set to begin. But then... Iraq in turmoil, terrorists fighting for control of the country. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, it's called ISIS. It's a... And once again, the Kurds found themselves under siege. Desperation on a mountaintop. Kurdish civilians, some clearly wounded, baking in the August sun. Kurdish leaders warn the minority religious group is facing genocide. After ISIS captured Mosul, just 30 miles from Erbil, the Kurdish regional government was suddenly in the midst of global conflict. Kurdish forces helped lead the charge in the fight against ISIS, and it cost the government dearly, including the $250 million set aside for the museum project. Construction had to be put on hold. Liebskind and his team watched in horror as the region they had grown so fond of became a battle zone, and ISIS began to direct its brutality toward culture. New video of ISIS extremists using sledgehammers to destroy ancient artifacts at a museum in the Middle East. ISIS militants inflicting new devastation on the ancient Syrian city of Palmyra, a huge explosion Sunday destroying the 2,000-year-old Bell Temple. I mean, it's not coincidental that they've chosen not just to burn people, but to burn buildings and systematically destroy them, destroy all the artifacts that have been here for thousands of years. Why are they doing it? Because one of the ways to rule by a totalitarian fiat is destroying memory. And buildings carry that memory even if we don't have it. For years, Liebskin's firm had complied with the Kurdish government's request to keep the museum project under wraps. But now, with ISIS obliterating ancient cities and artifacts, Liebskin couldn't bear it anymore. He wanted to tell the world about how they were going to help Kurdish culture survive and thrive. And somehow, he convinced the Kurdish government to let him. You know, the military can respond with bombs. Politicians can respond with words. But architects can respond with construction. It's something positive. It's never something negative. It's, you know, creating a place for people to come to, to be together, to show the solidarity in face of violence. 
So at a conference this spring, he unveiled the plans. And the design was pretty much what he had sketched on that first visit to Erbil a few years before. Here's what the museum will look like. It'll be made up of four irregularly shaped sections that link together, and those are meant to represent the four countries with major Kurdish populations, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. And then two pathways will cut through the museum. One is called the Anfal Line, the other the Liberty Line. You'll always be confronted with either a dark, heavy, solid past or a bright, uplifting, open future. Michael Ashley is a project architect at Liebskin's firm. The Anfal Path, taking its name from the Kurdish genocide in the 1980s, is narrow, dark, and maze-like. Very dimly lit inside, bare concrete walls, rough exposure. There's water in there, so you get kind of this cool feeling. It's solid from the outside, not a lot of light. So if you're walking into the passageway, the end of it won't be in sight, which at a symbolic level is a lot like the struggles the Kurds have faced. But the path on the other side is called Liberty, and it's a long rectangular terrace that ascends upward. And it's open air, it's bright to the sky, it has amazing panoramic views of the city and the citadel, planted with gardens, basically a a large open viewing platform celebrating the future. And lit by a flame, the Kurdish spirit. The architects hope this will be a place where people will gather and celebrate. Inside the museum, exhibitions will tell the Kurdish story in another way. Journalist Gwyn Roberts has been documenting violence against the Kurds for more than 30 years. His enormous collection of video interviews will form the basis of the museum's exhibitions, like this one with Aisha Ismail Ali. During the Anfal genocide, her husband and four children were killed. The boys and girls visit me in my dreams. When I sleep in the corridor, they visit me. I see them in my dreams. Because I always think about them. When I see them, they're beautiful. Until I die, I'll be waiting for them. Exhibitions will begin in the 1500s and chronicle centuries of persecution, revolt, war, violence, and efforts to rebuild. Gwyn Roberts says this kind of chronicle is something the Kurds don't have. Their schools don't teach their pupils what has actually gone on in recent Kurdish history, they don't really know. And the stories that will come out in the museum will give them a very graphic awareness. Although the Kurds are the fourth largest ethnic group in the Middle East, they've never had the safety and security of their own country. In Turkey, anti-terrorism laws are used against Kurds whose activities have nothing to do with terror. In Syria, the Kurds aren't officially allowed to use their own language. The museum would validate the Kurdish existence. The other thing is to tell the outside world, this is a largely untold story. And it's amazing that a people have lost so many and that they've not been given independence. A major challenge for this museum is that the story of the Kurds is unfolding in headlines at this very moment. But Liebskin believes that the building itself would tell an evolving tale. I've always believed in the narrative idea of architecture. And I think every great building that we know, whether it's in the Islamic culture, in the Jewish culture, the Christian culture, Chinese, Hindu, African, it's always a story. You know, we come to a ruin and we still can sense the story that these fragments tell us. After years of struggle, now the big question is, will the Kurdish museum actually be built? 
The original plan was for the Kurdish regional government to pay for the museum, but along with the war against ISIS, that money has been spent on relief efforts for more than a million and a half refugees. Now, Liebskind is looking for other supporters of the project to foot the bill. You have to be a believer. You cannot be an architect if you're a skeptic, if you're a cynic. As an architect, you have to be truly somebody of great optimism and faith. Because why? Because you are charged with laying a foundation. I mean, it's nothing shallow to dig the ground with you know big bulldozers and put concrete blocks into it. You're, you're laying foundations for the future. Thanks to On the Media's Mirror Sharma for that story. You can see a model of the proposed Kurdish museum at studio360.org. I don't think anybody disagrees that 2016 was kind of insane. It sometimes seemed as if the country was unraveling in a way it hasn't since the late 1960s when the Vietnam War was on and the counterculture and black power were discombobulating people. And in 1968, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated two months apart. The following year, the year of Woodstock, one record did its best to make people feel bound together, to encourage them to just get along. Sly and the Family Stone's album, Stand. It was a great blend of soul and funk and psychedelia and sheer glee. The band was unusually and proudly multiracial. And Stan features some of Sly Stone's most enduring and political music. Some of those songs, by the way, have provocative lyrics, so if you're listening with, I don't know, your Cub Scout troop, heads up. To tell the story of this seminal album, we have the band's guitarist. My name is Frederick Stewart. I am Sly Sylvester Stewart's only brother. Sly Stone's biographer. My name is Jeff Kalis, and I'm the author of I Want to Take You Higher, The Life and Times of Sly and the Family Stone. And a funk legend. My name is George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, sometimes known as P-Funk All-Stars. messages and everything he said when he said stand it was demanding it mean get up the song stand really is putting you in a position of standing up for what you believe in standing up for your joy this was like a civil rights anthem made rock friendly When Stan came out, everybody looking to be free. Black, women, gay, 
There was a whole lot of freedom being fought for at that time. Sly was able to be very artsy, fartsy with this stuff. In that funk, simple groove, he was able to create standards and still be funky. I mean, Simple Song was the epitome of funk songs, and it was a pretty pop message. My mom and my dad taught us right from wrong, never looked at black and white. You know, we just went to school on the weekends. We went to the parks. It's sort of like we all of us, we played together, <laughs> you know, all the colors of the rainbow. It wasn't until I was in the 12th grade that I ever seen a race riot. Don't call me So the songs, I think, help people see what we saw and how we lived and how things could be. Well, I was down across the country. So blackness was intact with his music. He, his social awareness was from a street point of view, but highly intellectual. He had messages, social, political, and then straight street. I Want to Take You Higher has so much in it. There's very much a feeling of sharing. Everybody gets to sing. Every one of the individual instruments gets its own thing. How many rock and roll songs can anybody name where that goes on? When he got to Woodstock, the fringes flying in the air, Take You Higher was like what Woodstock was all about. It was the epitome of that rock era. That was the top of the mountain. Woodstock was, was absolutely phenomenal. I think it was a special realization for Sly and the band when they came on in the middle of the night and saw themselves waking up fields full of thousands and thousands of hippies and saw this reflection back of these happy faces. You know, they recognized their power. If people knew my brother the way I know him, he's probably the least confident of the whole band. He's probably the one that needs the biggest great job, man, because he is so critical of his own material. Sometimes I'm right, and I can be wrong. My own beliefs are in my song.
You know, sometimes I'm right, and I can't be wrong. I mean, everyone can relate to songs that are on here. I personally, I'm forever grateful. Sly Stone represents everything that I love about music and writing music and singing music. Sly Stone, that's my man. That was George Clinton, Freddie Stone, and Jeff Kalis talking about the 1969 album Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. Our story was produced by Devin Strolovich for BMP Audio. Still ahead, a performer who's reinterpreting songs from every decade of American history, all the way back to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Our country was founded on dandy revenge. Taylor Mack is just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. When you think of drag, you probably think of crazy big wigs and high heels, fake Lizas and Judies, and a kind of one-note, over-the-top campiness. But a whole bunch of performers are out there showing that drag can do lots more than that. And certainly the greatest of those artists in America right now is Taylor Mack. He transcends the form and is one of today's most magnificent theatrical artists, period. His most recent project is a 24-hour history of popular music, and it is crazily ambitious. Mac goes back to the 1770s and takes on America's music decade by decade, all 24 of them. And last fall, he performed 246 songs from 240 years in a single concert. A reviewer from the New York Times described the show as, quote, one of the great experiences of my life. I talked to Taylor Mack back in 2014 when he was working on that show, and he started by playing me the song, If Your Kisses Can't Hold the Man You Love, Then Your Tears Won't Bring Him Back. We do this in the 1920s show. What we do, I tell the story of these two gay men, Larry and Barry. And uh, Larry, they were both in the war. And Larry's, um, the way he deals with the trauma of having been through the war is to squash the feelings down and not deal with them. And the way Barry deals with them is just to feel depressed. And so they're kind of fighting throughout the concert, Larry and Barry. And uh, at a certain point, they decide to... um, break up and Larry is very sad about it and Larry's fairy godmother comes and sings a song to him and this is it. Every time that I hear a woman cry that a man has left a flat I just feel like saying Don't be such a fool, you fool Come and dry your eyes Can't you realize That you gain nothing by that That's no way to keep his heart warm When his love grows cool What's the use of crying? What's the use of sighing? When he's wandered off the track If your kisses can't hold the man you love 
Then your tears won't bring him back No use being tearful You might as well be cheerful When he's giving you the sack Cause if your kisses can hold the man you love Then your tears won't bring him back If sweet sugar kissing will not bring him home How do you plan to keep him to you With tears and more So go be a regular fella Just say what the hell Grab his clothes You help him pack Cause if your kisses can hold the man you love Then your tears won't bring him back Home cooking is good and wholesome But everybody needs a little mutton on the side Every now and then If you find your man is cheating on you You just go out and you do the same He's only given you the chance you've been waiting for all these years You don't have to live a heteronormative narrative any longer It's called liberation Men, get them by the score Neglected women shouldn't worry That's what God made sailors for So don't cry for him or chase him Just go out and replace him With some good-looking Tom, Dick or Jack Kisses can't hold the man you love Then your tears won't bring him back If your kisses can't hold the man you love Then your tears won't bring him back That was Taylor Mack, accompanied on piano by Matt Ray, performing If Your Kisses Won't Hold the Man You Love from the 1920s. That was fantastic. There was clearly some uh, modern adaptation there in the, in the talked parts. Oh, sure, yeah. And how historically accurate – are you endeavoring to be or will you take lots of liberties? <laughs> oh, there's liberties. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I say it's my subjective history. I'm not a historian and I don't have an interest in being a historian. I have an interest in history. And so I do re- a lot of research and I like to reframe everything. So, for example, music from the 1770s, the whole decade has its own individual theme. Each one has their own theme. And the 1770s decade is about how America was founded on booze, man-boy love, and dandy revenge. And we basically go through the songs and we uh, appropriate them. You recontextualize yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, yes. in some ways we don't. For example, um, Yankee Doodle Dandy was uh, originally sung by the British to make fun of Americans, saying that they were dandies, and they were false dandies. They were tacky dandies, you know. The British lost a particular battle, and so the Americans forced them to dance to uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy while they sang it over and over and over again. And that's how it became an American song that we sing. So that there's a little bit of truth to my appropriation, you know, which is that our country was founded on dandy revenge. Yes. 
Now, will it get tricky a little later in the 1840s and 50s when minstrelsy becomes the big thing? Well, we've been doing them out of order. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I haven't quite done the 40s, but I found this family of abolitionists. I think they're called the Hutchinson family. Yes, they were huge stars huge in America. Huge stars. Yeah. And my idea is that we do the 1840s will be just their music. Uh-huh. But then there, that, that always comes up is there's so many minstrel songs and um, it's always a balance of you know, uh, not ignoring it, yes. um, but also not allowing that particular story to become the story of, right. of what I'm doing. But it seems like you can't ignore it. I mean, no, Stephen no, no, Foster, no. after all. Oh, well, and so the 1850s we did, and we did a, a Walt Whitman, Stephen Foster mashup. So everyone says that Stephen Foster is the, you know, the father of American song. So, but I think Walt Whitman is. So, what we did was we basically pitted them against each other. Walt Whitman is the self-declared no sentimentalist, and uh, Stephen Foster is a sentimentalist, and so we kind of used that as a way to kind of attack this minstreling of. That um, sounds great. Yeah, it's fun. Gender identity and sexual identity obviously runs through most, if not all, of your work. Does that figure in every decade of this? project or not? Well, it's a queering of history. I really do think that that's a lot of what I'm doing is uh-huh. finding where are my people in history, yeah. you know, even if I have to make them my people. Yes. I don't always focus on it for every decade. You but dial it back sometimes? Yeah, but sometimes, but it's always present, yeah. you know, because it's just who I am and right. what I do. So I don't have to hammer people over the head with it because, yeah. I mean, they're looking at it, so... <laughs> As I've read things you've said and written, it strikes me that surprisingly, uh, given who you are otherwise and the characters you play, that you're kind of a theatrical conservative. You believe in story (laughs) and craft and giving the audience what they want, right? Oh, I wouldn't say giving them what they want. Or at least satisfying them. I try to give the audience what they need. And what I mean by that is I'm trying to be a student of humanity. And so I try to figure out what do people need at this time in their lives, um, kind of collectively. Oftentimes, it's just about figuring out what you need because you're a person and people will relate to you, you know. So so that doesn't necessarily mean that the shows are always entertaining or fun or satisfying. (laughs) Sometimes they're really disturbing. Right. Um, But but you are a a show person, clearly. You like entertaining. I do. I do like to entertain people. That's Um, true. You were trained classically as an actor. Yeah. How and why and when did drag become the core of your performance? Uh, The whole reason I do it is because I'm I'm interested in homogeneity and heterogeneity. I grew up in a suburban uh, town where everyone was supposed to be the same. Mm -hmm. And... I, I've become very fascinated with that as a result. So my drag was about trying to take a topic and tear that topic apart and say how, what, in a kind of postmodern way, you mm-hmm. know, and then look at all the pieces and then put them all back together again somehow and say what, what's the full range of what the topic looks like and feels like. And it's also about exposing what I look like on the inside. So people will often say, do you feel like you're hiding when you put on those costumes? And I say, no, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm exposing what I look like on the inside. So when I'm wearing my jeans and a T-shirt, that's when I'm hiding because I'm trying to blend in with everybody else. And you don't – or and may, as I, far as I know, have never had a, a, a drag name. No, no. I, that was very – I really did not want to have a drag name. Because – uh, because then you become, you know, misalliance for the rest of your life yeah. or whatever, you know. And I think that's fun. You but, know, but it when sort of have, trivializes it? 
Uh, for me, it, again, it was about not hiding. So I just right. kind of wanted to expose who I was. You wrote, you performed and wrote this great thing called uh, a theatrical manifesto, I believe, mm-hmm. in which m- much of it struck me. One of the tenets that really struck me was, quote, if we stop telling a majority of the people they won't like what we do, they would actually like what we do. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm really interested in um, uh, in, in recognizing that people actually – that avant-garde is commercial. Um, Especially if you don't call it avant-garde. Right. And I, and I see people enjoy avant-garde fashion all the time. Maybe they make fun of it a little bit or, you know, but, but they line up to see it. Um, you know, it's the biggest selling show at the Met. You know, it was the, with the Alexander was McQueen? Alexander yeah, yeah. McQueen, Met, you know, yeah. it's at the Met. And that's the biggest selling show in the history of the Met. And it's avant-garde fashion. Yeah. <laughs> so what did the fashion industry do to um, encourage their audience to want to see um, avant-garde fashion and accept that, that uh, performing artists um, and they the just artists have not fashion. done? They just called it fashion. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, will you do another song? Sure. And this one is? Oh, we're going to do a Ted Nugent song. What? It's called Snakeskin Cowboy. And this is, this is from the 240-year <laughs> thing? Uh, yeah, it's from the 1980s, um, uh, or it might be 70s. I'm not sh- I can't remember. Yeah. But, um, the Ted Nugent heyday, in any case. Yeah, exactly. And what, what we did with it is we, we didn't want to actually have to listen to the song because um, we just read the lyrics. I felt like we needed to do um, something by somebody who was a conservative. Um, but I didn't want to listen to the song, so we just made up our own melody for it. And uh, we and were just singing his lyrics. Um, and so we'll do that for you now. Excellent. to assume that this song, you can interpret it this way, that uh, Ted Nugent was writing it to, to mean that he wanted to um, bash anyone who was dressed in fancy clothes and performing on a stage. So when I read the lyric, I thought, ooh, that song needs to be appropriated. So we've turned it into a uh, junior high prom dance. And what we'd like the listening audience to do is to find someone next to you and please just hold them and sway and just dance like you're at the junior prom. It doesn't matter what gender they are. Uh, If you're alone in your car or just listening to this by yourself, just hold yourself because that's subversive because if you hold yourself, it means you're a little gay. 
And our point here is that we want to turn Ned, New- Ted- Ned Nugent, we want to turn Ted Nugent into a gay. So that's what we're doing. We're gayifying his song. We're emasculating Ted Nugent. So just find your partner, hold them. If you um, if you don't do this, we we really have to really do it. You have to do it because if you don't do it, Ted Nugent will win, and it'll be your fault. Here we go. That's Taylor Mack, accompanied again, this time on vocal as well as piano, by Matt Ray, performing Snakeskin Cowboy. You can hear another song by Taylor Mack on our website, studio360.org. And that's it for this hour of Studio 360. Thanks to Shelley Lewis for her help this week. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes Jenny Lawton, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Gabriella Cortez, Jackie Harris, and last but not least, Krista Ripple, who is wrapping up her time here at the show. Krista is a bundle of enthusiasm and ideas. We've all loved working with her, and I just love saying her name one last time, Krista Ripple. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, trends come and go. So what should we expect in Washington over the next four years? All of the Republicans adopted this style code that I like to call contemporary fascist chic. Charcoal gray, slightly baggy, not too clean cut like Obama's suits. Central Wilson predicts our fashion future. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.